All right, let's get into, uh, let's get into Jonah, but let's, uh, let's pray first. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, and uh, Lord, we are so grateful that your goodness is constantly chasing after us. Lord, I love uh, that line from Psalm 23 that, uh, Lord, you are following us, you are chasing us, um, and Lord, you don't, you don't need us, and yet you want us. And so, Lord, I pray that, um, that your love, Lord, a, a word that's so commonly thrown around, and that's good, Lord, because you are loving, but Lord, I pray that the love of Christ would be fresh tonight. Uh, I pray that it'd be fresh for our hearts, fresh for our souls. I pray that it'd be fresh in the way that we give and love our neighbors and brothers and sisters, even in this room. And Lord Jesus, I also pray that your, your love would be fresh for our unbelieving neighbors, Lord, that will come through Alpha, uh, Lord, to hear your good news, Jesus, that you are uh, the crucified and risen king of this world, and uh, Lord, you are reconciling all nations to yourself, and so I pray that that would be fresh, um, and God, I pray that our, our witness would be a fresh witness to um, our unbelieving coworkers and friends and neighbors, Lord, in the places that you have sent us. Um, so Lord, even this moment tonight, I pray that you would equip us as we talk about loving our enemies. And I pray that you would uh, give us the power to actually follow you. And we're praying for this uh, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, three weeks ago uh, today, I was actually doing the math. Um, I was at our, um, yeah, our Gilbert staff retreat. And it was the morning before uh, we kind of had our first session. So it's really cool. Every single year, our whole staff gets to go to uh, a resort, so we went to a resort in Scottsdale, and uh, it's a time for us to bond, just here, like, kind of spend time worshiping together, because so often, um, honestly, we're putting on things like this, and it's just a sweet time for us to uh, worship with one another, and I had this kind of practice that I, I wish I did it every day, and I want to actually get to a place where I do it every day, but um, I semi-regularly do this thing where I open up my notebook, and I just ask Jesus, um, I literally write down with a pen, like, Lord, what do you have for me today? Because I was just like, Lord, I just really want to hear from you. And I think sometimes I was praying about this with our prayer team. Like, days just get so mundane. And sometimes following Jesus just gets so mundane. And maybe you've experienced that in the room. It's just like, it's just another day, another work week. But I think that question just helps me go like, Lord, what is it you want from me today? Like, I know you're real, you're living, you meet us in a fresh way in all these areas of our life. And so I just threw that question out. Like, Lord, what do you have for me today? I spent like five minutes in prayer. I went into our first session. And uh, yeah, we started singing, and it was really beautiful. It was so sweet. Um, and then all of a sudden, I can't explain it, except for probably halfway through the first maybe 20 minutes of this thing, my heart just started to grow so hard towards somebody in my life. And it, like, it literally like, it felt like it came out of nowhere. I was, like, I was like starting like this, you know, and then I was like, oh my gosh. Like, my, like, there was anger bubbling up in my heart. Uh, there was frustration, there was, um, yeah, I was just, I was just hard-hearted. It got so bad, I don't know if you've ever been like this, like I couldn't even, uh, I felt like I couldn't actually sing because I felt like I wasn't being authentic with Jesus. Like how can I sing about God's love for me when I'm just having this? So I was just like wrestling, like I, I, I so I was like, all right, I got, it got so bad that I was like, Lord, I just want to leave and I don't want to be in this room because I'm just so frustrated and I don't know what's going on with my heart towards this person. So I made it through the rest of that morning 
and I went to lunch with Connor and Kendrick, and I felt like I couldn't even participate in conversation. I don't think they even know this, but I was just sitting there silent, and I was just like, what is my deal? Like, I'm just like, I have such a hard heart towards this person. Um, I went, I, so, and then I was like, all right, well, I still got work to do. So I went to a coffee shop off campus. I'm like, I just need to get away from people. I need to, like, process this with the Lord. So, you know, I, um, I probably spent 30 or so minutes just praying. I'm like, Lord, you know, you know what's going on. You know why. You know how this triggers me. And, uh, and so I prayed, and I felt a little bit more refreshed. It got so bad that I went home, and I hadn't seen my wife in, like, two days. And I was like, hey, babe, so good to see you. And then I'm like literally like in a different world the rest of the night. Um, part of it is like I'm frustrated with myself. Part of it is it's just here and I can't get rid of it. You know when you like have anger towards somebody and you're like, I can't even get rid of it. It's consuming my mind. So I was in that place. And so at the coffee shop on that Tuesday, three weeks ago today, I was like, all right, Lord, I got a lot of stuff going on. I got to start prepping for this message tonight. I was like, what are we, what are we studying tonight? And then I opened up my Bible to Jonah chapter 4, and I was like, oh, geez, here we go. I was like, the lo- loving your enemies, loving the person that you just don't want to love, like the person that's hurt you, and God's like, I'm putting you through the process before you actually share your heart with the community and my word about it. And so I share that story to say, one, I want to put myself on level ground with you, not because I'm above you, but because, like, I want to say as a brother to you, like, I'm... I'm sharing God's word with you and like the, the encouragements and like the confrontation of it to just say like I'm with you in this and God's working on my heart too. And I also share that story just to recognize that it's just hard to love your enemy. And it can just put you in a funk and it can put you in a bad place and it can do weird things in your heart. And we just need, I think, before we even get into God's word, we just need to acknowledge that that reality can actually take place in our hearts. Does that make sense? Do you guys have those people? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I actually have a fun exercise. I do this with my small group. So Sarah Campbell and Mary Esther, you guys are going to do this for like the third time in a row. So do you all have a phone? It's 2022. Do you all have a phone? I want you to pull out your phone, and I want you to go to your notes page. And I have two questions that I'm, I'm going to ask you. And I actually, um, I want you to write down, here's the thing. This is a love, this is a who is my enemy exercise, Okay. And so I'm going to ask you questions, and you actually have to put a name or multiple names of people down that actually come up in your mind for these questions. Does that make sense? This is, like, super fun. It's like we get to get judgy in our hearts, like, right now, before we let, like, God speak to it. So, um, all right, question number one, and I really want you to do this. Okay, who is someone in your life right now, when you hear their name, your initial reaction is irritation, anger, or hatred? probably me. She's laughing over there. So like, who, who, who is somebody in your life right now that when, like, just say, like, when their name comes up, you just go, ugh, you know? Like, the frustration, the annoyance, like, that rises in your heart. It could be somebody in your life where you just say, I would be okay, like, we would never say this, but I would be okay if I never saw them again. Wouldn't that be nice? Like, if I, like, I could actually follow Jesus so well if it weren't for Abel, you know? Like, that, like, I'm, I pick on Abel because I love him so much. But you know what I'm saying? Like somebody where like you just fill in the blank. Fill in that person's name. It's going to feel weird writing their name down, but you got to do it. Um, this could be, let's just be real. This could be somebody who's hurt you, who's sinned against you deeply. It could honestly be as shallow and petty as like they're just annoying. Let's just, well, guys, let's just be real. We all have those people. Okay? Uh, this would be someone that you would love to see fail. 
I know, I know. We're going there. It's rough, but our hearts are that rough. Um, and here's what I think about it. Think about, like, you know, like, typically when somebody has hurt you or they, like, do something that's wrong, there's, like, something in you that's like, I would just love it if they were called out. You know? It's like, oh, that would be good. You got your name, your names? Okay, so that's, uh, that's your personal enemy. Uh, enemies also take the form of uh, one group against another. So here's, you got to put question number two, and here's the second question I'm going to ask you. Uh, what type of people, so whatever group you're a part of, it could be your family, it could be your friend group, it could be your church community, uh, you're just going to have to filter that on your own. What, uh, what type of people does the group you are a part of complain about? So when you get together with these people, they complain about these people. Uh, they gossip about these people. Uh, they try to villainize these people. A very, like, just phrase that's rampant in our culture is, like, they're toxic. It's like, that's just, they're toxic people. They're a toxic person. Um, guys, here's the thing. This could be a, it could be, if you're on the left leaning politically, this could be the right. If you're on the right, this could be the left. This could be a different church or people who went to a different church. Um, another way to ask this question that I think is really helpful is who does, quote-unquote, your people, whoever that is, who do, who do they see as the biggest problem or threat out there in the world? It's like if these people just got their act together, the world would just be a better place. You guys thinking? Is the Holy Spirit working yet? Not yet? Okay, he will soon, I promise. Okay, here's why I have you do that exercise. As silly as it is, and I don't really actually think it's that silly. When I talk to people oftentimes, and we talk about loving our enemies, one of the things that I hear so often is, well, I don't have any enemies. Like if I asked somebody, and I was like, hey, like who would you say your enemy is? They would say, well, I don't actually, like, I don't feel like I have any enemies. And there's a couple of problems when you actually don't name an enemy. The first problem is, is that when we don't name our enemies, it almost gives us an out on loving them. And what I mean by that is, is the Bible actually has very specific instructions. Like when you have an enemy, labeled enemy, uh, this is how you're supposed to treat them. But what we do is we don't actually name somebody an enemy, so we don't actually have to carry out those teachings from Jesus to love them. Does that make sense? So we just, we just walk in, like, well, I don't have any enemies, so therefore when Jesus says love my enemy, it actually doesn't apply to this person, and we don't actually love them. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says things like this, uh, in Luke 6, 27-31, he says this, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. An action word. These are his specific instructions. They're not like, hey, this would be like an ideal thing. He's like, I actually want you to do this for these people on your list. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other. Also, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your, t your shirt from them. I love this. Give to everyone who asks you. That's like generosity. Like, are you generous towards your enemies? If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Uh, I, I, and I think another reason it's helpful to name our enemies is, here's the thing. I think sometimes, and this is how I feel, I don't name my enemies, or I don't name somebody an enemy, because I feel like it's unloving to do it. Well, if I name them an enemy, it actually like, it just feels unloving. But I actually think what the power of naming your enemies, when you name somebody an enemy, it's actually the step, the first step to truly loving them. And you know why? Because you have a bullseye on, bullseye on their back. And you go, 
It's you. You're my enemy. I've named it. But now I have a bullseye on your back, not to slander you, but to actually bless you and love you. And I think it's helpful also to uh, differentiate between, before we get into this story. Um, I think oftentimes we need to discern between two things. One, uh, there's actual enemies in our lives, and then there's functional enemies in my life. Here's, here's what I mean. Actual, an actual enemy in your life would have been like Jesus, like the, the, he gave this teaching to the people of Israel, and who he would have been talking about is the Roman Empire. It's like, it's an actual, like, people or person, it's a group of people, and they are not your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they have, like, oppressed you, they've hurt you, they've wounded you, there's, like, an act of animosity towards you, like, that's an actual enemy. But I think there's, like, this, like, other category that still counts as your enemy that we don't actually talk about as enemy, but I would say it actually is, and it's people that actually function as an enemy in a moment. They act like an enemy. So this could be a person, like, in your small group, this could be like a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. This could be uh, somebody in your family. You would never say, like, they're my enemy. Like, they're not an actual enemy. They're actually my brother and sister in Christ. And I would say, yes, they're a functional enemy. And I think the power of what we're going to talk about today is that I think uh, I, the reason I made you, uh, like, make that list is we need to actually name the people and have in our minds, like, Holy Spirit, who are you actually talking about? when you're going to call me to love my enemy. And I just want to say, the people on your list is who I want you to think about as we go through Jonah chapter 3 and 4 tonight. Does that sound good? All right, let's do it. If you have your Bible, open up to Jonah. I'm actually going to reteach kind of chapter 3 and 4. We're going to work through this. And I just want to like just tell you up front, um, tonight's message is not like that profound. I think sometimes people, we come to church, we're like, I just want something really profound. I want you to say the same thing, but in a really fresh way. I just don't know how to do that, one, all that well. And two, I think when Jesus talks about loving your enemy, I'm like, I don't know how else to say this, except like, we just need to hear what God says and then like, be a people who do it. Does that make sense? So tonight's going to be really simple. I'm going to walk through Jonah 3 and 4. I'm going to make some uh, appeals to your heart at the end of why it's good for us to love our enemy. And then uh, we're just going to worship and ask God to help us do it. So Jonah chapter 3, let's look at verses 1 through 4. So it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now pause. If you've been tracking through us or with us through the story, Jonah is a prophet of Israel Uh, And God said at the very beginning of the story, like, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to your enemies, and I want you to preach grace and repentance to them. Jonah's like, that sounds good. I'm going to go to Tarshish. So he literally goes the opposite direction. Instead of going 300 miles to Nineveh, he goes 1,500 miles, no, 2,500 miles to Tarshish, and he runs away from the Lord, and he gets on a ship, and, and then God sends a storm, and then the sailors are like, what the heck? Like, where's the storm coming from? And Jonah's like, it's me. Throw me off the ship. And so they throw Jonah off the ship. And it's like Jonah's last ditch effort to like get away from God and what he's calling him to do, which is to love his enemies. Jonah is sinking down into the sea. He gets swallowed by a fish. And then in the fish, he starts to have a change of heart. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. He starts to repent. He starts to recognize like he's just hit rock bottom in his life. And you know this, when you hit rock bottom in your life, oftentimes that's the place that God's grace works the best. And so like Jonah has this transformation that starts to happen in his heart. The fish vomits him out onto the shore And God's like, all right, back to square one, go to Nineveh. So that's where we're at. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. 
Here we go. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. This is the first time Jonah ever obeyed the word of the Lord in the story. And he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, here's, I want you to just actually pause here for a second. Notice Jonah didn't say, hey, and if you guys don't repent in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned or destroyed. He just goes out into the, into the city and says, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And now what's interesting is uh, sometimes people will say, I think... Uh, like Jonah actually like made a message that just like declared to the city that they were going to be destroyed and he didn't give them the option to repent but it said that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and that he said what God told him to say. So God tells Jonah, hey listen, go to the city, tell them that in 40 days you're going to be turned over and so I picture Jonah being like, man, God must have heard me repent. I was in this fish. I've learned my lesson and God's like, all right, Jonah, go tell them they're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And he's like, yes. And so he goes in. So for three days, I, just, I don't picture like Jonah being like, all right, guys, you know, I just picture him like smiling, you know, like he's like so happy. He's like, you're going to be destroyed. Like, could you imagine people on your list, if you could just go to them and be like, yes, like something bad's about to happen to you. Like there's something really good. So I picture Jonah going through the city, telling everybody that the whole nation is going to be turned over. And then Jonah uh, he has this shocking, not shocking surprise to what happens next. Look at verse five. It says, the Ninevites believed God. Now don't, don't skip over that. A whole city who does not know Yahweh, the one true creator God of the universe, believes God because Jonah eagerly tells them they're gonna be destroyed. It's incredible. Not only that, a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. So they're like, they're putting on like these like coverings. They're showing like, man, we messed up. Jonah's right. We need to believe God. Uh, And then it says in verse six, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. I just wanna pause here and say, this is not the point of the sermon, but if you want a beautiful picture of what repentance actually looks like, that's it. You get off the throne of your life, you take off the royal robes that you think that you have, and you humble yourself before God and say, I'm king. You don't say to God, I'm king. You say, you're king, and I'm not. It's a beautiful picture. I've just been meditating on that verse a lot this week. Uh, Verse 7, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. So he's like, not even your dogs get to drink water or eat. And he says, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And I love this. Who knows? He doesn't even know God. He doesn't know his character. He didn't have like a one-on-one lesson like, Jonah, what's your God like? He goes, who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I love this. We often repent. And, and we, we turn from our sin because we know God will forgive. He doesn't even know if God will forgive. And he goes, who knows? Maybe God in his compassion will look upon us. And in the verse 10, this is beautiful. He says this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. All right, let's see how Jonah responds. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's like, it's like that God, like, God, you're so good. This is like what you do. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Here we go. 
and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is, that is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you, I knew, think about your accusing, typically, like, God, I knew you were angry. Like, I knew you, like, don't love me. He goes, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity, and this is the best part, Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, jump in Jonah's shoes for a second. This makes no sense if you're tracking with the story. Jonah just preached. He knew what he was preaching. He knew what he was going into. Like, he knew he was going to Nineveh, and he knew he was going to have this opportunity. Do you think, why do you think he's surprised at what happened? Because I'm telling you, if I were Jonah, I'd be like, dude, you just preached the most successful sermon in human history. A whole nation repented and gave up their ways. This would be like some, of, some one of you going down downtown Gilbert, Friday night, Whiskey Row. And you're like, everybody, if you don't turn from your evil ways and your drunkenness and your greed and your sexual morality, if you don't turn from these things, you're going to be destroyed. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, you're so right. Who is this guy? Like, it would be like, it would be that shocking. That's what Jonah does. He walks through a city and tells them, hey, if you don't get your act together, if you don't repent, something bad's gonna happen. And so why does Jonah respond this way? And I think this is actually the most, uh, the, the best part of the story. So, okay, you're gonna have to go into like a, a Hebrew course for me, with me for a quick second. I think Jonah was shocked, not because, uh, not necessarily because, um, I'm not going to say that actually. I, this is why I think Jonah was shocked. I was gonna, you know when you just like go somewhere and you're like, there's nowhere else to go if you go that way? Or I'm going, going back this way. Here's why I think Jonah was shocked. Jonah said exactly what God told him to say, which is in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. And then what happened? And Nineveh was not destroyed. So he's like, God, I actually said what you told me to say and they weren't destroyed. And here's why. What's interesting is that word turned over. If it's in, in some of your uh, Bible translations, it says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Sometimes it says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be turned over. D- the Hebrew word for turned over is havak. So H-A-P-H-A-K. And depending on the context, that, that word can either mean turned over as in destroyed, or it can mean turned over as in like right side up, changed and transformed. See what's happening here? God says, hey, Nona, Nina, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell the city that in 40 days they're going to be havak. And Jonah goes, I assume exactly what you're saying. They're going to be destroyed. And what God actually told Jonah to go announce in the city is that in 40 days you're going to be transformed. It's beautiful. So Jonah's going through the city like announcing judgment. And what he doesn't realize is he's going through the city announcing grace. And so then he sits, and this is why Jonah's like, God, you tricked me. And I think I would say, you didn't, I didn't trick you. You didn't ask for clarification of what I meant. And I wanted you to tell them that they were going to be transformed by me. Now, I want to say this. Jonah was angry. And um, Tim Keller has a really helpful uh, thing that he says when he's talking about the anger, like when God reveals our anger in this way. He says this. This is where we apply it to our lives. He says, as long as there is something more important than God to your heart. As long as there's something that's more foundational to God or foundational to you than God to your heart, you will be like Jonah, both fragile 
and self-righteous. Because your whole life is orbiting around a different center other than God. And if anything threatens what you love most, which is what was happening to Jonah, you'll be overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and despair. So in this moment, God is revealing, like, Jonah, there is something more foundational to your life than me and my mission. And I have to reveal it to you. And what happens? Is that not true? We have, like, this anger and despair. And we do, we say what, what Jonah says, God, it'd be better if I would die. How many of you feel like when God's, like, working on you, you're like, I'd rather die than go through this whole process with you, Lord? Here's the thing. Jonah is an exaggerated picture of what our hearts actually say. Jonah is an exaggerated picture. And we laugh and we giggle. But do we not say the same things to God in our hearts when he starts to work on the idols? Let's continue on in the story. Look at Jonah 4, verse 4. But, so this is where I would say, this is where uh, God starts to come after Jonah's heart. Like, so in the whole story, like, this is where God just like, he goes after Jonah. He says this, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I love that God doesn't rebuke Jonah right away. He just asks him a question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, in his fuss, says nothing. He just has no words for him. And he says, so Jonah just had gone out, gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So I love this. Jonah already knows what, so he goes out to the city. He pitches a tent like he's at a football game. He's like, I'm gonna still wait and see that if in 40 days they're gonna be destroyed. So he, he doesn't answer God and he's like, all right, I'm gonna, Lord, I think you, st- you still might destroy them, so I'm just going to wait it out and see what happens. But the Lord just continues to pursue Jonah, just like he does us. It says, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. This is where it gets weird. And, it, and, and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Isn't that so nice? Here's what I love about this part of uh, the story. Even in Jonah's idolatry, God's co- comforting him. You think God's rebuking you in your sin. You think he's yelling at you to get it together. He asks you a question. He's like, hey, is it right for you to feel this way? We resist him, and we just go out and away from the city. East in the scriptures always talks, is always a place like away from the presence of God, so it's like showing that he's trying to get away from the presence of God again, and God comforts him. Doesn't rebuke him. He loves him. I love that. Verse seven. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm must have been a big worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me, there he goes, it would be better for me to die than to live. What I love about this part of the story is is God in his kindness is moving towards Jonah. He's appealing to his heart. And what he's revealing to Jonah in this moment, he goes, Jonah, the first thing, have you noticed, Jonah, that the first thing that you even, the only thing that you cared about in this story and have so far is something that comforts you and something that helps your own standing. The first thing that you ever cared about in the story was a plant that benefited you. And so what he's trying to do, and notice, God doesn't rebuke Jonah. He doesn't, like, God doesn't, like, ask him the question, and then, like, Jonah still refuses. Uh, God doesn't try to just convert Jonah's heart through speech, but he actually starts to convert Jonah's heart through circumstances. Tim Keller, again, in this part of the story, says this. He says, God didn't just try to convert Jonah's heart through speech. He put Jonah through difficulties and disappointments 
And I think we just need to sit on that for a second. He put Jonah through difficulties and disappointments, and he is doing spiritual surgery on the idols, self-righteousness, and superiority of his heart. So he's like, I can't convert you with my speech. That's not going to work. Here's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to put you in difficulty and disappointment. I'm going to have to make you uncomfortable. Does that sound familiar? For me to show you what's actually in your heart. And here's why. We talk about idolatry or putting something in the place of God in our life as if it's like just something bad that we should stop. Jonah's idolatry is preventing the love of God from flowing in him and through him to his enemies. His idols are like, I think about this, it's like, they're like blockades, they're barriers. Idolatry isn't just bad because they're just things that we have that we worship other than God. They actually block God's love from going in us and through us. And God's going, I have to uproot that in your life. And God goes, I have to deal with it. I have to do surgery on you. You wouldn't listen to my words. How often is that true in our life? We don't listen to his words. And so God goes, all right, I have to put you in difficulty and I have to disappoint, me, disappoint you because I have to do surgery on that idol. That, that other thing in your life that's more foundational to you than me, I got to deal with that. So that's what God does. And then God makes his final appeal. Look at verse nine. But God said to Jonah, I love it. He, just, he doesn't rebuke him. He just asks him another question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plants? And then Jonah goes, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Isn't that just so nice? But isn't that true? We, God reveals our idols. He puts us in difficulty. We're disappointed. Guys, this is, guys, this is, this is embarrassing to say out loud. There's times where I'm so disappointed in my life because there's something at the center of my life that I'm like, God, I don't even know why I'm doing ministry anymore. Like, this is like the worst. I, you know, what do you even want with my life? And God's like, okay, Corey. You know, like, I, let me, I'm so angry, Lord, I wish I were dead. We do this, and I'll be the first to say it. Look at verse 10. I love the Lord's response. He says, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. I love this. Though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. You barely even knew the plant. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, more than 120,000 people, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? That's it. That's how it ends. Isn't that a weird ending? And so God asked Jonah, he goes, you, you, you care about a plant perishing, you didn't even make the plant. You didn't even know it more than a day. And he goes, shouldn't you care about people perishing? Over, you're, a, you're a plant over people guy, Jonah. And God's like, I made these people. The image of God is in them. Sin has robbed them of their humanity. They don't know their right from their left. They're ignorant. And he's like, I love them. You didn't make the plant and you were sorrowful when it went away because it benefited you. Your enemy, I know that your enemies hurt you. He's like, I created them and love them. Do I not have a right to love them, to show them mercy, to show them grace? Jonah 4, it's over. That's it. Isn't that a weird ending? Here's why I was wrestling with it. I was like, why does Jonah 4, and actually it was funny, I think somebody the first week was like, why does Jonah 4 end the way that it does? And I was like, I don't know, I'll find out in about four weeks. 
And, uh, and so I was sitting on it, and I think the reason uh, that Jonah 4 ends this way is because the question that God asked Jonah, the question that he wants him to wrestle with and answer is the same question that, that God wants you to wrestle with and you to answer. Your story is supposed to pick up where Jonah's left off, where you're like, the whole idea is to get you down on Jonah, to condemn him, to see him as stupid, and it makes it like an exaggerated like, picture of it. But then it ends with a question to say, like, well, what about you? Do I not have a right to be a God of compassion, grace, and mercy to the people on your list? That list, the list of names, I want you to like, think of those people, their faces, their names. And not only that, do I not have a right to like, show compassion and love and grace to them? But this is where it really gets good. I think God would ask us, do I not have a right to show them compassion, grace, and mercy through you? Because what I've realized in my life, and maybe you can attest to this too, is I'm pretty cool with God loving my enemies. I'm just not cool when he asks me to do that too. You know what I'm saying? It's like, God, you can love, man, yeah, please, love on them. Lord, love them so much. And you pray that God would bless them. Maybe that's like the best you get. But when God goes, I want you to do it. That's where we get wonky. And I just want to sit, I want to put this phrase in front of you. And this is where I said there's nothing impressive. uh, There's nothing flashly. But I just want you to know, God loves your enemy. And I was so hesitant when I was about to like, yeah, come up here and when I was prepping this, because I know many of you, like an enemy isn't just like some like person who's like, you know, made a comment about you that kind of hurt or they're just, you know, it's not just somebody who's annoying, but there's people in here who you have an enemy that has really hurt you. Like an enemy that has messed you up. I could go into specifics and examples, but I don't think I need to. I think you guys know. But I want you to know that this remains true. God loves your enemy. Let me clarify. I'm not saying that God loves what your enemy does. I'm not saying that God won't judge your enemy. Christians have stated all for the course of ever since we follow Jesus, there's a final judgment that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, that every person must give an account of their life for the things that they've done to our Lord and Savior. That's still true even in judgment. Because what does scripture, scripture says? Um, yes, vengeance is the Lord's. Hallelujah. And I really mean that, not just like hallelujah. Praise God that vengeance is the Lord's. But um, scripture also says that God says, I don't, I'm not willing that anybody would perish. Like I don't like, it doesn't give me joy to like condemn people. It gives me joy to give grace. And the heart of God says, I love your enemy. And that's what he's saying in Jonah 4. Is it not right for me? Nineveh, they're horrible, they're wicked, but I love them. And I want to show them grace. And I want to show them grace through you. And so that's how it ends, giving us this beautiful picture of God's grace. And... um, and so God, this is what God does. He, he gives appeals to Jonah. He's trying to convert his heart. And so I just thought, I want to leave you three things that are like really practical because sometimes it's like, oh, cool. All right, now what? You know, God loves my enemy. I passed the test. 
but I think there are, I want to appeal to your heart tonight. I, w- I want to give you three things, and some of them are going to be, uh, I think, really helpful for you. They've been helpful for me. Uh, the first reason I would say we need to love our enemy is because your soul will die if you don't. Let me just ask you a, a simple question. How is hating your enemy going for you? What's it doing in your heart? Do you feel refreshed when bitterness is there? My guess is when you hate your enemy or refuse to give love to them, you're dying inside. When I shared that story with you at the beginning of tonight of like this person in my life that I was really struggling with, my soul felt like it was dried out and dead for about three weeks. And it reveals that the enemy is more of a master over you than you are over them. Because your enemy is controlling you. Because your emotions, your stability, it's based on them. And so the first thing I would say is like, if you want freedom, if you want joy, if you want to have like a life to the full and not bitterness to take root in your heart, it, 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 I want to ask you to do the hard work of transformation to forgive and love your enemy. Because your soul will die if you don't. The second one is more positive. Um, I mean this. You ready? Your enemy is a gift. So this is what I want you to do. When you see your enemy next time, I want you to go, you're a gift. I want you to go, you're a gift in your mind. And, and, or you could just say it out loud. And if you say it to me, I'm like, okay, I'm it. I know. I'm a gift to you. <laughs> you know? But your enemy is a gift. Uh, there is a Walter Wink. This is a longer quote. But guys, pay attention to these words. These, this is powerful. He talks about our enemy being a gift. Lean in, please, on this. It says, this is the gift of our... This is the gift our enemy may be able to bring us, to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. I love this. They are our friends precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore those parts of us because they're, they're able to. It's like, why is Connor my friend? It's like, because he's gotten over, like, the parts of my life that are horrible. You know, like, why does my wife marry to me? Well, she's covenanted now, so she has no choice. But like, she was able to get past, she was able to get past my flaws. Um, the enemy is therefore not merely, I love this, a hurdle to be leaped over on the way to God. Guys, get this. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. If you're taking notes, that's the sentence you write down. Our enemy actually might be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our own inner shadows, except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming, except through the mirrors that our enemies hold us up to us because they're a gift. Now, here's what I would say. He actually goes on to talk about this exercise. Like, if you're actually angry at somebody, I did this in my mind, I didn't do it on paper. He said, write down all the things that piss you off about them, and then look in your own heart and see if you can find a seed of it there at all. And when you do, I'm just, I'm just telling you, when you do, you'll be shockingly surprised at how similar you are to your enemy, even if it's on a smaller scale. And so I was thinking about this. We tend to evaluate our enemies to build a case against them. Do we not? It's like, oh, you're my enemy, and I build this internal case so like, I can, like, like slander you, like we build this internal case against our enemy, but what Jesus is asking us to do is we need to, yes, evaluate your enemies. Please, if you go out of here, like I want you to evaluate your enemy. But we need to evaluate our enemies not to build a case against them, but to build our character for them. 
That's really important. Not to build a case against them, to condemn them, but to build our character, to experience transformation, so then I can actually go and love you in a way that's beautiful, godly, and Christ-like. Does that make sense? Your enemy is a gift. All right, lastly, and here's where we're going to end. You were on God's enemy list. I had you guys fill out this list of all of the ways, you know, I asked you questions, how are they, how have they hurt you, and I had you put names down. And I think sometimes we just breeze past this as Christians, but we need to recognize that God had an enemy list and your name was on it. Our name was on that list. But look what scripture says, Romans 5.10. It says, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says this. Once you were alienated, which means separated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of what? Your evil behavior. You were rebels of the king. But now he has reconciled you. He's brought you back together by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. It essentially says your name was on the list, now you're on the list, and there's no accusation I have against you because I've washed it clean. Without blemish and free from accusation. Now, I just want to say this and then we're going to get into worship. It's not enough to just know this. Like, my, uh, my concern for you is that you're going to be like, check, wrote it down, got it, it's somewhere in Colossians, in Romans. Um, scripture says these things because Scripture wants you to feel the beauty of this. I've been trying to do this in my life where I just sit in God's presence and I read a verse like this and I just sit there. And I'm like, I don't have words for it. I'm not trying to like write out a sermon where I just sit and like, I was God's enemy. Like, his enemy. And in love and grace, while I was sinning, while I was doing that stupid stuff, Christ had already died, washed me, and cleansed me. And so, I think when we need to sit here and we need to take a deep breath, and what I would just encourage you to do is even just in your own life, closing your eyes and picturing Jesus up there on the cross. And I'm just saying like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but like sitting there, like Jesus died on the cross and the nails that went through his wrist were because you as his enemy were putting them there. The whip that filleted his back, the tears, the spit, the punches to the face, the mockery, that was because we were his enemies. They were our nails. It was our whips, our words. And I just want to take it, not just like in our past, some of you right now, and I don't say this to shame you, God in his kindness leads us to repentance, but I think when you see the dark, it really shows the beauty of the beauty. Some of you right now are living as a functional enemy of Christ. There's a part of your life that you haven't given over to him and you are just living as a rebel of the king. You're resisting him. Scripture says it's like trampling on his blood. And we just go, well, everybody's doing it. 
or like I've been okay up to this point. And I think what Christ wants us to do is that we need to sit at the foot of the cross and gaze at our, as our, at our King and our Savior and go, Lord, how could you do that? And we need to sit in adoration and thanksgiving. And so instead of like hyping you into like feeling really good about this, I want to do something that might be a little different for us tonight. Um, I'm going to leave this verse on the screen. And the band uh, is going to play one song and then we're going to sing a couple others. But for one song, I don't want you to stand. I don't want you to like just jump into worship. I just want you to sit in your chair. Uh, you, can, you can close your eyes. Uh, you can pray with somebody next to you. But I just want you to sit in this reality that you were an enemy and now you are a loved and beloved child of God. And you can either just sit and look at this on the screen and just go, I'm just going to, I'm just going to look at this and behold the beauty and grace and mercy of God. And as we sit and as we delight and as we pray, I just want to encourage you. Many of you probably haven't even had five minutes today or five minutes this week to sit with the Lord. And I just want you to say, Lord, meet me here. Let me see your beauty. And after we do that, we're going to sing and we're going to worship the Lord. And, uh, and that'll be it for the night. So why don't you go ahead and do that and then we'll get going.